Hello ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Welcome to Straight Talking English. I am your host, Catherine, and we are here today for a potentially sad, potentially very tragic occasion because unless I get further demand, and by which I mean probably like actual demands from people, I'm quite easily led. This will be the last episode I am devoting to Macbeth before I move on to Romeo and Juliet. If you like what I do, there are two revision guides to accompany this series, Chopping Up Shakespeare and my context comics that you can get from Tez or straighttalkingenglish.com. Or you can tweet me, str8talkenglish, on Twitter. The reason I kept saying tragic so much is because today we're going to focus on what I have termed in finally making it as a teacher, my own original acronym, RAT. We're going to look at reactions, we're going to look at audience, and we're going to look at um, the idea of tragedy. So, who are Shakespeare's audience? We say, we toss it out quite a lot when we're writing, like Shakespeare's audience would think this. And the answer is it's actually really difficult to define who Shakespeare's audience is. There's young, there's old, there's wealthy, there's poor. Depends where you sit, really. There's men, there's women. Everyone, in general, is looking to have a good time. If you come for the cheap seats, by which seats I mean literally like a pit, if you're there for the pit, it's cheap and you've come for entertainment. You might be one of the people who's come to see a sword fighting exhibition and all like the special effects and cool stuff going on. You might be someone who's interested to hear what this writer has to say. You might be interested in a specific actor, I've mentioned it before, Burbage, superstar of the stage. Or Will Kemp, who apparently is like the funniest man alive and he does this one specific dance and it's gone down in history for like 500 years. Either way, you're expecting to hear something new. You're going to have the gunpowder plot in your mind, regardless of whether you're a Londoner or not. Whenever I've read about the gunpowder plot, it just strikes me so much as being similar to 7-7. This fear, this like, we don't know what's happening. Anything could happen. And this is playing on people's mind. It is not that long ago since there was literal treason and a plot to overthrow the royals and replace them with someone better. You will have lived through the succession crisis. So Queen Elizabeth died in 1603 and she was very cagey and easily offended about naming an heir. So for all you knew as a theatre goer, that could have been it. That could have been the end of everything. There was this, you would have experienced that crisis of what will we have a ruler? What is going to happen to the country? Everyone would have pretty much pretty much definitely everyone would have believed in a Christian theology, would have believed, you know, God Jesus, the tenets of Christianity, even though Catholicism was more or less outlawed and outwardly everyone would have appeared to be a good Anglican, there is nothing at all to say that they may well have been people harbouring Catholic sympathies or being actual Catholics themselves. Notice notable people, very high up in the government, were Catholics. So the idea of the whole thing being an analogy for the gunpowder plot could have struck home. And one thing I will say is that everybody who was there had a role in society. They had somewhere to go, somewhere to be. They knew what they were doing. They knew the path they were on. I mean, I'm generalising a little bit because we all have crises of faith. I mean, to be honest, and if you're listening to this, please employ me. 
because after June, I am pretty much going to be a housewife unless I can uh, sweet talk some more people into hiring me as a freelancer. So even though you have these personal crises, will I be the world's worst housewife? Will I start dressing like it's the 50s and giving my partner martinis and a pipe and slippers as he comes in? Who knows? People had jobs. People had roles. But we have to look at it in a slightly more intelligent way than that. We are sitting here in 2019 and we have the benefit of 500 years, give or take, of scholarship on this. A good lens to start looking at the reactions to Macbeth is through this lens of tragedy. Tragedy as a term tends to come from this book by Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher, writing in the 5th century in a book called Poetics. Usually, his stuff about ancient Greek tragedies doesn't really apply to Shakespeare, except apparently for Macbeth it does. I'm going to be quoting quite heavily from an essay by a guy called Stephen Reagan on Macbeth. And Reagan says that Aristotle noted that tragic drama induced in its spectators a set of conflicting feelings, including both pity and terror, which were ultimately reconciled by catharsis, a purging or release of these emotions. The dramatic representation of tragic incidents could leave an audience feeling relieved or even uplifted rather than dismayed or depressed. According to Aristotle, the tragic effect is maximised when the hero or protagonist is neither preeminently just or virtuous, nor entirely given to vice and depravity, but a person of an intermediate kind. In terms of social rank or reputation, however, this person is generally someone of recognisable eminence and power. The ideal plot is one in which the protagonist suffers a change in fortune, from happiness to misery, as a result of some tragic flaw or error of judgement. Harmatia, the fatal calamity, often takes the form of excessive pride or hubris and leads to divine reputation, reputation? That'd be great. Retribution or nemesis. The reversal of fortune, peripetia, is accompanied or followed by moments of discovery and self-knowledge, antagonisis, in which the protagonist acquires some insight or understanding through suffering and comes to see things as they are. Well, that blooming sounds like Macbeth, doesn't it? I've argued before he's some middleman, some some uh, Bateman type. He's an intermediate person. He goes from relative happiness to misery. He makes a terrible judgment. He ends up arguably with divine retribution. And he does have moments where he learns things about himself, where he has this conflict. Let's think about some more contemporary criticism, contemporary to the writing. A guy called Philip Sidney, writing in 1595, said, The high and excellent tragedy that openeth the greatest wounds, and showeth forth the ulcers that are covered with tissue, that maketh kings fear to be tyrants, and tyrants manifest their tyrannical humours, that with stirring the effects of admiration and commiseration, teacheth the uncertainty of this world, and upon how weak foundations gild and roofs are builded. Right. Builded? Right, fair enough. <laughs> but he's got a point. This is a tragic play, according to the definition I just told you from Aristotle. It's exposing problems that are in society. It's people's reactions to the structures of power. It could be used to legitimate them, according to Reagan, or subvert them. It can expose corruption. Sidney was using this metaphor of the world as a body, and that's quite a common one. It's called the body politic. The work of tragedy tells us that everything, everything can change in a moment. We could be good, we could be bad. 
Who knows? I quite like that because this is a very ambiguous play. I'm going to come on to that in a little bit. The great philosopher Hegel, GWF Hegel, writing several hundred years afterwards, argued that when we watch a tragedy, we become reconciled to the idea of destruction. We as an audience member, we when we see someone who's partly good, even though they kind of have a bad side, when we see them being destroyed, we approach a truer understanding of good and evil. So is that what Shakespeare's trying to do? Is he trying to provoke thought from us about what is good, what is evil? Bradley, who I was quoting extensively, and I think he's a bit of a boss man actually, argued that the conflict in Macbeth and tragedies as a whole is between the individual and the group, as well as internally. He says the central feeling in Macbeth is an impression of waste. With Shakespeare at any rate, the pity and fear which are stirred by the tragic story seem to unite with and even merge in a profound sense of sadness and mystery, which is due to the impression of waste. We seem to have before us a type of mystery of the whole world, the tragic fact which extends far beyond the limits of tragedy. Everywhere we see power, intelligence, life and glory which astound us and seem to call for our worship. And everywhere we see them perishing, devouring one another and destroying themselves with dreadful pain, as though they came into being for no other end. Tragedy is the typical form of this mastery. And this comes into this whole thing about the world is wasted and we can make of it what we want. Reagan goes back to this idea of the witches and he says that rather than seeing the witches as palpably evil, we might try and imagine them as the embodiment of all the anxieties, hostilities and fears that so-called civilised society habitually represses. And I've been thinking about this. If I was going to stage Macbeth, which, uh, as I said, might have time too soon, other than the desperate need to try and cast cats as the central roles and make it a YouTube sensation, is I would have the witches as terrorists. I'd have their faces masked, their voices like disguised with voice recorders to play on this fear that a terrorist could be anywhere. Just to make it worse, I'm going to make them racially ambiguous to highlight the fact that we as a culture and the media profile terrorists to be from a certain background. And my terrorist witches could be from anywhere and that's what's going to make them creepy. In fact, because we know this is a play, it's designed for performance. We read it in a book. A lot of the things, a lot of the things I've said about Macbeth as if he's a person, come from directors. Alan Sinfeld, the critic, wrote in 92 that we must try and engage diverse original audiences, activating diverse implications in the text. This was a daring play at the time. It's not just propaganda, it's this ambiguity of is it subverting, is it supporting, what does it mean? Making us ask questions. So for example, one of the decisions that a director might make is, do we isolate Macbeth? Do we physically have the actor stand on his own? Or do we have it as like loneliness within a crowd? And despite what we now know about Roman Polanski and how much of an awful trash human he is, his production of Macbeth is really famous because he's 
inverted a lot of the things we take for granted. His Macbeth is isolated, but his story is not hopeful. His story is cyclical, and it ends up with the witches coming back again. You know, like, more witches. That's what we need, more of them. Everything in the play is open to interpretation, and ambiguity is at the heart of everything. It's this fundamental instability, to quote Reagan again. Words and images are continually redefined and misinterpreted. So things that would be obvious to us in terms of signs and meanings are altered for a Jacobean audience, altered for within the characters, altered for everyone. It's what makes it such an unsettling place. Think about the amount of times he hallucinates. So Macbeth sees his hands clawing out his own eyes and more notably he sees the dagger he knows he has imperfect knowledge is he like the witches he calls them imperfect speakers has he become an outsider like them is he acknowledging that they're not giving him all the information he explicitly says to know my deed were best to know myself he knows he doesn't know it all so we can't take anything for granted would the director actually show a dagger flying in the air in my head it's on like strings like thunderbirds would they show Banquo's ghost. So I saw a production uh, two years ago at the Globe, which I thought was alright until the apparitions came out, and they were genuinely unpleasant. But in the Banquo's ghost scene, a hatch opened up in the floor, everything went quiet, and this beam of light shot out and the actor playing Macbeth was talking to the beam of light. We know the ghost doesn't say anything but the slightest decision on the part of a director can re make us reinterpret everything, can shed light on the ambiguity, can make it more ambiguous, less ambiguous. I don't know. I'm coming back to the stupid porter bit, the bit no one ever covers in class because they're like why in the middle of all this you know death and destruction is a bit about this drunk guy and that's a meaning which is lost in time. I mean, realistically, it might allow the actor to have a change of clothes if he's covered in stage blood. Narrative-wise, it might allow Macbeth to clean up. It might allow Macbeth to cover up his deed and recollect himself. But the meaning of the porter's speech is incredibly ambiguous, depending on how morbid you are. And if you know me by now, I am the most morbid. So the porter talks about wanting to throw up because he's wasted. So for the record, if you don't know this bit, there's a doorman called the porter waiting at the door and he's wasted. And he has a little chat to himself. And he's kind of funny, like it might just be the light relief he's kind of funny and then he talks to the other characters he talks about satan a bit and he lets everyone in and then they realize duncan's been murdered but to get back on track the porter talks about wanting to throw up he says his drink lies in my throat wow lies in your throat lies that are waiting to be told so he's like he's being strangled and contemporary theology said that if you're killed in the middle of lying well my answer is are you lying if it's only halfway through you're immediately damned to hell so is this already an illusion could you play him as being some kind of weird soothsayer we all know that if a fool or a character who's an outsider has license to say more than we expect you could so easily play him as being this creepy guy who knows it all or you could have him as a drunk guy he starts talking about puking a bit more he says he wants to make a shift to cast out. He wants to, to purge his stomach. 
So talking about purging, casting things out, does that mean the state? Are we giving clues that everything will be ruined, everything will be cast out? Does it just mean he needs to vom? Does it mean Macbeth needs to talk about it? I don't know. The porter talks about being St. Peter, this imagery of him being the guy at the gates of heaven deciding who goes to heaven and hell. First imagery of redemption, introducing the image of the knocking, of hell knocking on Lady Macbeth's door. Which, the more I think about this, the more I think of that that season of Doctor Who where uh, Amy and Rory are in it and there's that image of uh, the window opening. I don't know why, that's just, that's my allusion to it that's come out. So we're immediately thinking in terms of Christian imagery and a lot of the quote unquote good characters reference Christianity as being like, I am on the God's path. But Macbeth is beyond the clear cut ideas of good and evil. He's in the world of ambiguity. Like, so where do we place him within this theology? If we're talking about deep thinking and clever people, and I did mention this last episode, I was going to talk about this. Sigmund Freud, the master of psychoanalysis, argued that Macbeth was incredibly interesting in terms of personality types. And you wouldn't think someone like the noble Freud would say this, but he argues that the whole motivation of the players' issues with their childlessness, and it's a portrayal of a couple who can't have children and their anguish. It says it was by his childlessness which urged him to these courses, but enough time and room is given to these plausible motives. He argues that if one surveys the whole play from the summit marked by these words of Macduff, one sees that it's sown with references to the father-child relation. The murder of the kindly Duncan is little else than patricide. In Banquo's case, Macbeth kills the father while the son escapes him. In Macduff, he kills the children because the father fled from him. A bloody child and the crowned ones are shown him by the witches in the apparition scene. The armed head which is seen earlier is no doubt Macbeth himself. But in the background rises the sinister form of the Avenger Macduff, who is himself an exception to the laws of generation, since he was not born of his mother but ripped from her womb. It would be the perfect example of poetic justice in the manner of the Talion if the childlessness of Macbeth and the barrenness of his lady were the punishment for their crimes against the sanctity of generation. If Macbeth could not become a father because he robbed children of their father, and a father of his children, and if Lady Macbeth suffered the unsexing she demanded of the spirits of murder, I believe Lady Macbeth's illness, the transformation of her callousness into penitence, could be explained directly as a reaction to her childlessness, by which she's convinced of her impotence against the decrees of nature, and at the same time reminded that it's through her own faults if her crime has been robbed of the better parts of its fruits. Alright, 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 I'm no expert on psychology, and if these were real people, I would totally go for that. I do think Freud is basically making up some, making up some stuff. I think he's inventing imaginary friends. He also links these to being a symbiotic, a symbiotic, symbiotic relationship. It's impossible and pointless to regard Lady Macbeth as an independent character and seek to discover the motives for her change without considering the Macbeth who completes her. The germs of fear which break out in Macbeth on the night of the murder do not develop further in him but in her. It's he who has the hallucination of the dagger before the crime, but it's she who afterwards falls ill of a mental disorder. Together they exhaust the possibilities of reaction to the crime, like two disunited parts of a single psychical 
That's not even a word. Individuality, and it may be that they are copied from a single prototype. So Sigmund Freud is arguing that they are a symbiotic, parasitic relationship and they can't have kids. And that is the sole motivating factor. And I reckon if you've got some good quotes, you can make a nice point about that before I bid you adieu. There's just one more thing I'd like to consider. Is this a happy ending? Well, not for Macbeth. But is this an affirmation of the right way to act? Well, maybe because equilibrium is restored, then it is. Because things have gone back to normal. The rightful king is on the throne. But kingship can be acquired. Kingship is not this mystical thing that's bestowed. Macbeth did acquire it relatively successfully. Tragedy explores and inflames these tensions. People are going out and they're considering, well, what if we didn't have a king? What if the gunpowder plot worked? What if things could change? And the one note I will leave you on is the first staging of Macbeth. We are only about 50 years away as a country from killing our king. Remember Charles I, who is the son of James VI, or James I, will meet his sticky end after the Civil War in the Palace of Whitehall, and he'll be beheaded, and we will have a republic for 11 years after that, before the Restoration. Is this an example of tragedy undermining, tragedy inflaming, tragedy subverting, tragedy revealing, tragedy enlightening? I don't know, it's a glorious, gloriously ambiguous play, and I love it, and I hope you love it too, because it's fab! Right, right, I am officially Macbeth out. If you heard someone stomping around, that is because my partner's just come home, and that means it's time for us to order a pizza and watch Amazon Prime. So I will bid you adieu, and I will return shortly, as soon as my research allows me to, to discuss the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, also known as Don't Fall In Love, also known as Everyone's An Idiot, also known as really, really beautiful second half to this season. Enjoy Macbeth, and I'll speak to you very, very soon.